Um, <laughs> so the, the gift of God, this whole week we've just been meditating on this, this one idea that God is the greatest treasure he can give to you. God is the greatest gift that he can give. First night we looked at all these counterfeit treasures in sin the world offers us. I almost think of in Genesis when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree. There's a couple things that he does that he still does today. He questioned the goodness of God. He questioned the truthfulness of God. Right? You're not going to die. You're just going to become like God. God's trying to hold you back. That's why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Right? You're not going to die. You're going to live. And then when Eve heard Adam's te- or uh, when Eve heard Satan's temptations, she looks at the tree and she thinks, "Man, that tree does look pretty tasty." man, that tree does look pretty nutritious. Man, could it possibly be that this tree actually will give me something better than what God has? And that's continuously with idols what Satan is constantly doing today. His tactics haven't changed and they still work strongly unless we realize the lies that he's, or, you know, that he's speaking. Unless we realize this, what, who God is is far better than what the tree can give us. So we talked about the idols that we worshipped yesterday morning. We talked about Jesus as the supreme treasure. One of the things that makes me confident, that that makes sense to me about Christianity when you compare it to other religions, is other religions will offer you treasures. Right? We think about the, uh, you know, in in Islam, the idea of of paradise, especially for uh, those, you know, the, the men who are motivated into acts of terrorism, we have this idea of the 72 virgins, right, that are offered to them if they're faithful to Allah. And so for in, the, in that scheme, uh, the gift that they're looking forward to is this palace, this paradise, this future pleasure, right? In other religions, there are these gifts of, of peace and joy that are offered. But in Christianity, the ultimate thing, again, is not a gift that God gives, but it's God himself. Right? It doesn't, it's not talking about practices that we do to gain peace. It's not talking about sacrifices we make in order to gain treasures. At the heart of the Christian faith is a person who is the treasure. It's Jesus. So we talked about the supreme treasure last night. We saw pictures of those who savor Christ. Right, And if we are savoring Christ as the greatest treasure, we can be content in two areas. Both the painful areas and also the areas of plenty in our lives, which is just as important to feel contentment in, is it not? Right? I think a lot of us last night were like, man, I've never been thrown into prison, except that one time, right? Uh, I've never been whipped for my faith. I've never, you know, uh, gone without food for a day, two days, three days. And so maybe last night as we were hearing about these immense tragedies, it gives us encouragement that if we ever get to that, you know, sense of or that sort of a tragedy, we will have Christ to be our sustaining treasure. However, for us, we also need to remember what Paul says, I learned how to be content in both pain and in plenty. Right? And so we saw these pictures of people who are able to be content when things are terrible and when things are great because their contentment is found in the ultimate treasure that is Jesus. This morning, here's the one question I want to ask. How do we actually live a life where we are savoring Jesus as the supreme treasure? How do we do it? Right? I teach my theology students at the high school that uh, the truth of God's word has, if, if it's going to affect you the way that God desires it to affect you, it has, one, it has one pathway. And it has to do this direction in this order if God's truth is going to transform you the way that God wants. First, 
in order to be transformed by God's truth, we have to learn it in our heads. That's why doctrine is essential. That's why the Bible says it's the word of life. We actually need to study and understand the teachings of the gospel, right? It needs to be understood because you will never be changed by something you don't understand and you don't know about. But it can't stop in the head. Once we understand the truths of the gospel, it needs to make its way down to our heart. Right? Jesus talks to the Pharisees and they were men who had God's word in their head but lacked it where? In their heart. And, and, and so, and oftentimes we talked about how the pipes can get clogged where, we, where our education about Jesus far exceeds oftentimes our affections for Jesus. And so theology needs to make its way from our head to then be loved in our heart, but it can't stop there. Once theology, once the truth of God's word is loved in our hearts, then and only then will it be lived out with our hands. Head, heart, hands. Every single area of your whole personhood needs to be made alive by God's truth in both head, heart, and hands. So, we talk about Jesus being the supreme treasure. I feel like we've got that down in our heads by this time. Hopefully by the examples and the stories of Paul and Joni and Kurt and Alley and, and even just uh, the gospel as we, hopefully I pray that it's made its way down to your heart in discussions with other believers in small groups, you know, in, in your prayer. I hope it's made its way to your heart. This morning, we're going to focus on this. What does it look like to live out with your hands the fact that Jesus is the supreme treasure? One time I was at a summer camp. This is at a lake, Lake Elsinore by uh, where I live. It's a really dirty lake, but we went down there because it's cheap. Um, it's like green, sludgy water. It's, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Fish with four eyes, things like that. Um, so we're in there, and I was on a uh, little inner tube on the shore with another leader, and uh, we were, kids were kind of relaxing. It was kind of in a mellow, you know, dip of free time in camp. And we're just kind of sitting there on an inner tube. And it's on a, it's on a lake. And so we're just we're hanging. We're talking. And we just get engrossed in just this conversation. We're, you know, one of those conversations where kind of everything else goes dim. You know, it just kind of fades away. And it's just like all you can, you're just fully present in what, what's been talked about. We're talking, we're talking. It goes on for half an hour, about an hour. We're just all oh, this and that, this and that. And then finally, I, I kind of just start to pay attention to what's around me. And by the time... I started to look around me, I realized that though we started right by the shore of the lake, we had slowly drifted all the way till we were in the middle of the lake, right? About a half a mile this way, half a mile that way. And we were just out there on our inner tubes just by ourselves. And I realized the, the, the tide, the pull was so subtle. The wind blew so just quietly and gently. I was so distracted by the conversation that I had no idea that I was even moving until finally I looked up and realized that I had traveled a great distance. I had drifted a great distance without ever realizing it. Now, at that moment, I realized that is a perfect parable of the Christian life. You and I are drifters. See, in the Christian life, if we are not paying attention to Jesus, if we're not paying attention to what's going on around us and within us, none of us will naturally drift toward holiness. We will always drift into worldliness. We will always drift not toward Jesus, but away from Jesus in the song, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Spiritually, we're like the dog from up, 
right? Where we're like our eyes on Jesus. And if we're not just lock and step in Jesus, it's a squirrel, right? And we just, you know, we go this way. And so what I'm asking this morning is for spiritual drifters like you and I, who can easily drift away from this week's truth about God being the gift of the gospel, how do we stop that from happening? How do we stop from drifting away from joy in Christ to finding joy in the world? How do we stop drifting away from pursuing holiness and not fall into being conformed to the image of this world? Now, when I ask this, here's, I just wanna, I want you to know this. Oftentimes when we ask, how can we make sure that we're really living for Christ and we're really on fire for the Lord and really enjoying him, we can fall into a trap thinking this. If I want to live a life that is savoring and enjoying Christ, what I need is some extraordinary experience of God's grace. And I think this actually happens because we watch a lot of movies and TV. And when there's a character change that takes place, well, how, does character, how do characters change in TVs and movies? It's always one profound scene, right? You can dial it down to one scene. They have one conversation and their whole world just flips over. They see things in a brand new light. They have one experience and then they're brand new people for the rest of their life. And we sometimes, I think, adopt that mentality for the Christian life thinking, man, I would be very disciplined for the Lord. I'd be very on fire for Jesus if I just heard that one sermon that just really rocked me to the core of my body. Or if I just, if I just had that one truth that would give me that paradigm shifting experience, or if I just had that one Christian, you know, that one spiritual experience, then my life would be radically different for the rest. And so we constantly search for this extraordinary experience of God's grace, trying to manufacture this extraordinary, hoping that that will forever change us. Sometimes we do have extraordinary experiences of God's grace, but what does eventually end up happening? We drift back. So if we were to think about our, my analogy with the lake, it's kind of like, oh, I've, I've, we find ourselves in the middle of the lake and we go, how can I make sure that I'm never in the middle of the lake? We're like, I'm gonna wait for a helicopter to come swoop down and pick me up and then bring me back to the shore and I'll never be. And if you wait for the helicopter to come pick you up, what's gonna happen? You're never gonna get back to the shore. However, if you ever find yourself in the middle of a lake, what's the, what's the thing that you wanna do to get back to the shore? What's the thing you have to do? Just start paddling back. And paddle by paddle by paddle, you will slowly make your way in the right direction, making progress and getting closer to your goal. So in the Christian life, if you do not want to drift away from Christ, but you want to grow in maturity, grow in holiness, grow in affection for the Lord, don't seek after some extraordinary experience. Instead, devote your life to paddling day in and day out, using not these extraordinary experiences that may happen, but using the ordinary means of grace that God has given you to paddle back home. Okay? And so the question that we're going to ask is, um, what are these means of grace that God has given us to make sure that we are paddling toward Christ and not drifting into the world? Uh, I don't know if you've heard this term, means of grace. I've heard a couple of you guys talk about it. Here's what we mean by means of grace. They are practices that we do or gifts that we receive in order to become more like Christ. How we think, how we feel, how we act. Don't think of means of grace like this. This is the wrong way to think of it. Of the means of grace, the things that God has given us to grow, they are not things we do to gain God's favor. Because where have we gained God's favor finally, fully, and perfectly? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
through Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection, we are perfected in the sight of God. We are without sin and we are perfect in righteousness. When you put your faith in Christ, just what God said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. When you put your faith in Christ, God says that about you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. When you trust in Christ, you have the forever favor of God. Amen? Like Spurgeon said, Christianity is not a religion of do, 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 do. Christianity is a religion of done. We do not work to gain God's favor. We work in response to the favor that's been given to us through Christ. So means of grace are not done to gain favor, and also they're not done to gain forgiveness. Sometimes you guys sin, and I remember when I was younger and I'd sin, and I'm like, I gotta read at least four chapters of the Bible to make up for that one. Right? Or I've got to I gotta set some chairs up after service after that doozy of a sin back there. And we think I need to do these acts of service or prayer or Bible reading in order to absolve my sin. Again, that is a deficient gospel in our head because our sins are dealt with through the cross. So means of grace are not done to gain favor or forgiveness. Here's how I want you to think of them. Here's the picture. Through Christ, the Bible says we are adopted into God's family. Amen. Now, when you are an orphan and you're adopted into the family, you now have many gifts that you didn't have before. So if you are an orphan adopted into the family and you want to be fed, you don't just sit there waiting, right, for food just to kind of show up in your mouth and just, you know, or, or you don't just think, I'm going to be fully satisfied all the time. If you're an orphan and you're adopted into a family and you get hungry, what must you do? Eat the food your new family is providing for you. Right? The food is yours. The food is yours to take. It's yours to eat. It's yours to enjoy. But you, in order for you to be nourished, you need to actually receive this food, the gift your family is giving you. You need to actually chew it and digest it and eat it. Otherwise, it's never going to help you. Or if you're cold and you're an orphan, your family's giving you a new, a new wardrobe and it's all of yours. But in order to benefit from your new wardrobe, what must you do? You got to put it on. You got to wear it. Right? If you have an orphan on the street and they're just I'm so cold and they're like, why don't you put on one of your jackets? What are you talking about? Why don't you put on that? And if they were to say to you, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to try and gain favor in the family or things. You know, it's like, no, they've given you this gift. You are to wear this gift. You are to use this gift because it's yours and you're only going to benefit when you're actually using it. So as we have come to Christ, Jesus has given us infinite riches. And in order for us to benefit from those riches, we actually need to what? Receive them. We need to use them. And only when that happens will we benefit from them. So let me give you this morning four crucial gifts that God has given you to protect you from drifting and to help you pursue Christ in affection and, in affection and holiness, okay? These are four crucial things. Number one, here's the wisdom from God's word, Proverbs for our weekend. Number one, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's a very abstract statement, right? What does that actually mean? look like. First of all, just know this. When you get down the mountain and you go back home, you think, you'll think, oh, I'm not going to hear any more preaching until I get back to church. That's a lie. If you put on music on your way back home, guess what's being done? Someone's preaching to you. If you turn on Netflix right later tonight when you get home and you watch a movie, guess what's being done? A message is being preached to you. When you go to school and you talk to your classmates and you hear about their worldviews and what they think the world's like and their ideas and their philosophies, do you know what the world is doing through those people? They are preaching to you. We live in a world where we are constantly being preached at. 
Preaching is not the sole jurisdiction of the church. This world actively preaches to you through music, through movies, through friends, through experiences, through advertisements in billboards. They preach to you 10,000 different gospels and they're trying to conform you to it, their image. Romans 12. Right, Romans 12. talks about um, give your lives as a, as, a, as a living sacrifice to the Lord, right? Holy and pleasing to him. But before it says what you need to do, give your life as a sacrifice, it says this. Do not be what? Conformed to the image of this world. Now that grammar there, do not be conformed. Where's my grammarians in here? What tense is that? passive. So the idea that Paul's giving us is he's saying this. He's not saying, hey, don't conform yourself to the world because that would be who's the actor. We are. But when he says do not be conformed, what is Paul assuming? The world is actively trying to conform you to its image. And the only way that you'll push back against it is if you are actively saying no. And so the world is preaching to you And so if you are not intentionally and consistently looking to Jesus to become like him, you will be looking to the world and becoming like it. There are two preachers in this world. There is Jesus and there is everybody and everything else. And in order to be conformed like Christ, you need to make sure that you have one preacher who gets your attention every day and that that's Christ. And so how do we do that? This is where I think Christian devotions come in. Let me just give you a simple way to think about devotions. Number one is this. In devotions, we come to God's word, and as we open the scriptures and we read through the scriptures, you could do this with a Bible reading plan. You could do this maybe getting together with another believer and reading through sections of scripture together. There's 10,000 ways you can go about taking in scripture, but I want you to think about reading scripture like this. You're listening to God speak to you. When you come to scripture, you are listening to God speak to you. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Scripture is all we need to be rebuked when we're in the wrong, corrected back onto the right path, taught the things that Christ wants us to know, and trained to live the way Christ wants us to live. In Scripture, if you were to think about it, I'll give you a couple pictures, there is a medicine for any sickness that you could ever have. In Scripture, there is food to satisfy any hunger that you ever have. In scripture, there is a tool. It's a tool shed where there is a tool for any situation you find yourself in. It's a manual where you can be trained to do any kind of work that God calls you in. Here's the reality, guys. Scripture, God's word, is spiritual food. This is your spiritual refrigerator. And if you are not constantly, like a good growing boy or girl, opening the refrigerator of God's word and taking your food from it, your soul will continually be malnourished, your ministry will be ineffective, and your joy in Jesus will be non-existent. You cannot maintain joy in Christ if you are not hearing from Christ. Now, don't turn this into some weird legalism where you have to check off a box of reading scripture every day. Or even if you miss a day of scripture or miss two days of scripture, don't think I've sinned because there's no command in the Bible that says read the Bible every day. And if you don't, you're sinning. But what we do want is we want to know this. In the Bible, God lays out a feast for us. Sit down and eat as often as you can. And as you are hearing from God, here's what I want you to do. Have you ever just read scripture? 
just amen. And you think of the truth of God or a promise of God, and you're just like, amen, God, you're so good. When that happens, put the Bible down and pray. In that feeling of thankfulness that you have in your heart, verbalize that to God in prayer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If that affects you, you put that down and you just say, Lord, thank you. You're my shepherd. Thank you that you protect me, that you provide for me. Thank you that you're leading me to the green grass. You're leading me to the still waters. And so what's happening is God is reminding you, I'm your shepherd. We hear from God, oh, you're my shepherd. And then we respond to God in prayer. Thank you, Father, for being my shepherd. Or how about this? Have you ever read the Bible and you may not be able to say amen, but you say ouch, right? You know, you're like reading and you're like, oh yeah, oh man, that hurts. That's an opportunity to what? Put down your Bible for a moment and pray prayer of confession to God. You read Paul saying, I've learned to be content in any and every situation. And you think about how discontent you are, though. You may have all these things at your hand and you're convicted by that. Don't just be, man, I'm convicted by that. Let's move on. Take that as an opportunity to respond back to the Lord in prayer saying, Lord, I need to confess to you. I'm discontent right now. And it's not because you're lacking in giving me what I need. It's because I'm lacking in taking it. And so when people talk about prayer being a conversation with God, they talk about just kind of be quiet and have a still, small, silent voice and whatever feelings you have going on in your heart, that's God speaking to you. No, that's not God speaking to you. That's probably indigestion, right? So, so the voice of God does not come to you through a still, small, silent voice. That happened to one guy, Elijah, at one time, and it never happened again in human history. That is a poor example of what our daily prayer life should look like. Instead, what the Bible prepares us for is this. God is not silent. He's written to you quite a lot. Could you imagine if you had a secret admirer and they wrote you a love letter and it's this big? You're like, that's not a secret admirer. That's a very blatant stalker, right? That is, that is affection that is way beyond what I deserve, right? But God has not given you this eensy-weensy, teeny little letter. He's given you this. And when you hear from God, you hear from him not by feelings in your heart, not by subjective impressions. You hear from him through his word. Some pastors will say, you want to hear the the voice of God audibly? You want to hear the words of God audibly? Then read the Bible out loud. And so we hear from God in his word, and we respond to his word in prayer. So if you're one of those people, if you're like me, and you're like, okay, I want to pray good, I want to pray good, and you just kind of get down and you go, okay, Father God, and then again, you're like the spiritual dog from up, squirrel, right? And you get distracted, or you're like, I don't know what to pray about, or you just kind of don't think. That's okay. Let the scriptures kickstart your prayer life. And I promise as you are praying in response to the scriptures, you're going to pray about things that are far nearer to the heart of God than just asking him to bless food to the body and make us get safe travels and just kind of make, you know, someone feel better. You're going to pray about your own holiness. You're going to pray about confessing and repenting of your sin. You're going to pray that the gospel would go out unto all the world because your prayers will be led by God's priorities, not yours. And I promise you, praying is a lot more enjoyable when it's not just you giving one big spiel to God, but when it's you conversing with God in his word. It makes prayer exciting, not a dread. So we listen to God through his word. We speak back to God. We praise him. We confess to him. We thank giving to him. We request for help. God, I I see that you have, I need your help for this. And that is how we fix our eyes on Jesus is through his word. Okay. Here's one thing I want to say, and then move on to the second practice. Here's your goal for devotions. 
Your goal for devotions is not to make Josh satisfied that you're doing devotions. Your goal for devotions is not to satisfy some kind of low-grade guilt in your heart so you can check off the box. Your devotions are not to just uh, satisfy your OCD complex of wanting to get done every single little to-do list you know, in, in your day. Your devotions have this one goal. Ready? This is this one goal. Your devotions should exist to get your soul happy in Jesus. That's the goal of your devotions. George Mueller, a Christian uh, in Germany about 100 years ago, said this, and this changed my view of my devotions, and I hope it does yours. He says this, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this, above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention, but I deliberately repeat it to you. It is of supreme importance that you should seek above all things every day to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. And so your devotions are not just to accomplish a duty, but they exist to help you get to a place of delight. That's why they exist. And listen, friends, if your soul is happy in Jesus, you're going to obey him. If your soul is happy in Jesus, you're gonna serve him. If your soul is happy in Jesus, you're gonna love other people in a way that reflects him. If your soul's happy in Jesus, you're gonna evangelize for him. Not because you're like, oh, I gotta evangelize for Jesus, but you're gonna be like, oh, Jesus, do you know Jesus? Let me talk to you about Jesus. You will be most like Christ when your heart is most happy in him. Seek to be happy in the Lord right through your devotions. Number one, that's how you paddle back. Number two, become a member of the church. Become a member of the church. I think there's a helpful distinction we can make between two types of church people. There are church attenders and then there are church members. A church attender is someone who speaks about church as an event to go to. A church member speaks about the church as a family they belong to. A church attender goes to church on Sunday not to give, but only to get. A church member goes on Sunday to give, and, sorry, to give and to get. A church attender sees church more like a spiritual grocery store. Right, you guys all have your spiritual, your, are your real grocery stores, right? Maybe if you can go to college, you have the one that you always go to and you start to get familiar with the aisles. You may even know some of the, the tellers or clerks. If you're super extroverted, you like know their names, last names, their kids, their dogs. If you're an introvert, you like kind of remember their first name, right? And, and you, you kind of know them a little bit. You know, they kind of recognize you. But the grocery store, you don't go to the grocery store to give anything. What do you do? You go to the grocery store to what? Just to get when you go to the grocery store, no one gives you a mop being like, dude, aisle four has some milk that spilled. You know, go there because you have no responsibilities, right? You just go there to get. A lot of people treat the church like a spiritual grocery store where we go there and we get all kinds of the spiritual commodities that we need. And once we're filled up and happy, we go back home, use them until we need to kind of re-up. We feel no sense of responsibility. We feel no sense of commitment. Maybe beyond like we get a little rewards members card so we get some extra points, you know? And so that's how a lot of Christians see church. And if one church kind of stops serving them in the way that they want it to serve them, what do they do? They pick a new grocery store. No harm, no foul. 
Or some Christians, they have, oh, I go to this, this church for these reasons, and then I go to this church for those reasons. That's like, kind of like my wife. It's like we go to Trader Joe's for some items, and then we go to Costco for other items because Costco has better prices on certain things. If you treat church that way, you're not a church member. You're just a church attender. The church is not your family. It's just your grocery store. But in Scripture, the beautiful thing that God gives us in the church is not a grocery store to get spiritual goods from. It's a family to belong to. It's a family to belong to, where you are committed to both get from the family and to give to the family, where you don't only benefit, but you have responsibilities to the family. Do you see your church in that way? And if you don't, this is an invitation to grace. Three simple reasons I just want to encourage you to think about church. Number one, some people are like, well, I follow Jesus. And yeah, church is like, can be important, it can be helpful, but it's not necessary because I have Jesus, so we're saved by Jesus. Absolutely true, we're saved by Jesus, amen? But think about the metaphors the Bible uses for the church. Three Bs, simple. There's more than just this, but these are three, three Bs, makes it memorable. One is the church is the foundation, or sorry, Christ is the foundation, and the church is the what? Building. What if someone invited you to their house, you pull up to their house and all you see is just a basement open? And they're like, this is my house. You're like, what kind of hobo are you, right? Like no one just lives in a basement. When you have a foundation, that's not the finished product. That's just the beginning. But a lot of Christians, when it comes to their relationship with Jesus, they have the foundation, but they don't have what? The building. And you look at that and you say, that's incomplete. Because the foundation exists that the building may be built on top. They always go together. If you want Jesus, the foundation, then you also need to receive what? The church that is built upon him. Think about this. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is what part of the body? The head. The church is the body. If we say I follow Jesus, but I don't want to be a part of the church, what kind of picture are we doing to that metaphor? Me and my severed head Jesus. Right? Isn't he so beautiful? Look at his long, flowing shampoo commercial hair. Right? And, you know, you're just, you have these pictures of devotions with Jesus and just you and Jesus running on the beach, just your severed head Jesus. Just like, oh, this is so wonderful, Jesus. If you, could you imagine if someone came to you and it's like, it's like, you know, Dave, I think you're really awesome. I just hate your body. Right? I just, I want nothing to do with your body. I just want your head, Dave, like that beard and the crown of wisdom, right? Just the, I just want that. I don't want your body. And you go, if you want my head, if you want to, you need to accept the body. I don't care if you don't like it because these two are never what? Separated. If you love Jesus, the head, then you will also accept and love his body. Three, and this is the really powerful one, the church is the bride of Christ. Church is the bride of Christ. Could you imagine being like, Josh, I really love you, Josh. You're a great pastor. I really, but I can't stand Amanda, right? I don't, I don't ever want to be around Amanda. She is annoying, right? You're, you're at the house. You're playing with Josh and Theo. You're like, I can dig this. I get then Amanda walks in the room and you're like, oh my goodness. Who invited her, right? She's the worst. Josh, Amanda's just the worst. Don't you agree with me? She's such a hypocrite. She's so insensitive. One time she hurt my feelings. I hate your bride, Josh. I hate your bride. That would never fly because who loves Amanda? Josh does. And if you are going to have a loving, healthy relationship with Josh, then that necessitates you also have a loving, healthy relationship with Amanda. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. You can't be close to Jesus and intentionally distance yourself from his people. It goes against the grain of scripture. Churchless Christianity is disobedient Christianity. 
if you're following Jesus, he will lead you to his people. And that's not just like a thing that you, oh, bummer, I have to do it. When you actually are a part of the family of God in a way where you're not just an attender, you're not just a dinner guest, but you're actually a family member, you'll experience that it's not a burden, but it's a blessing. The church needs you, but friend, you also need the church. Remember this one story about a, a pastor who had a church member that he wasn't at church for a couple weeks, and so he finally calls this church member, and he says, hey, you know, hey, Bill, how you doing? Like, well, I haven't seen you. Or I uh, said, hey, Bill, I, you know, wanted to just come over and see how you're doing. He didn't mention that he wasn't, you know, at church or anything. I just want to come over. And so Bill invites the pastor over. They lived in a snowy mountain area like this in a cabin, and it was snow out, and it was cold out. And so the pastor drives up, and Bill knows why the pastor's there. He hasn't been to church in, like, about a month and a half. But Bill doesn't say anything. Pastor, can you come on in? They grab some coffee. They go into the living room. He has a nice fire roaring. They sit down, and they just sit in silence looking at the fire. Bill knows why the pastor's there. He hasn't been to church, but the pastor doesn't say anything. And he just kind of puts his coffee cup down on the side of the chair. He gets up and he goes and gets the little fire tongs and he grabs one of the logs, you know, the really roaring fire. He gets one of the logs and he just puts it over to the side, inside the fireplace, over to the side, away from the other logs. And it's fired up and it's, you know, flaming. So there's kind of two different fires. He goes and puts the tongs back. He sits down and, again, just stays silent. And they're just watching and then all of a sudden, that one log that he took out of the fire, it goes out, starts sizzling, starts smoking, goes cold. And then the pastor gets back up, takes the tongs, grabs that log, puts it back onto the other logs, and automatically, it lights right back up. The pastor puts the tongs back, sits back in his chair, and then Bill says, it's a good point, Pastor. I'll be back on church on Sunday. <laughs> you see, friends, you will burn out without other believers keeping your affections for Christ warm. We are all the wandering sheep and we are safest when we put ourselves in the middle of the flock. You need the church. Churchless Christianity will soon give away to no Christianity. Number three, so first, fix your eyes on Jesus. Two, become a member of the church. Three, cultivate at least three intentional relationships. Real simple. You need to get yourself a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Paul in scripture, Paul uh, was Timothy's mentor, his spiritual father. Timothy's dad wasn't a believer. Paul came into Timothy's life as a spiritual father of sorts. He taught Timothy the scriptures. He trained Timothy for ministry. He, he ministered with Timothy, showed him how to do missionary work, how to plant a church, how to be a pastor. He was to Timothy a spiritual father, a man who loved Jesus, who was more down the road, a little bit more mature, a little bit more wise, a little bit more earnest for the help of Timothy. Timothy attaches himself to Paul, and Timothy's life is forever changed because he has a spiritual father who is watching over his love for Jesus. Do you have a Paul or a Paulette? Honestly, though, not just some people that you, you, you admire from a distance, but someone who knows you. They know your sins. They know your struggles, right? When you read the letters of Timothy, Paul knows that Timothy is timid. He knows that he, you know, struggles with confidence. He knows that he kind of shies away from confrontation. Do you have an older believer who is a little bit down the road than you, who knows you and loves you and prays for you and supports you and cares for you and equips you? My dad's not a believer, and by God's amazing grace, I had a spiritual father adopt me. 
His name's Dave Keen. And he taught me the scriptures. He taught me about Jesus. He taught me how to do ministry. And to this day, I say with absolute confidence, I would not be who I am today without my Paul. In your life, there is someone who's a little further down the road with wisdom and care to offer you. Do not neglect the gift of spiritual fathers and mothers. Get yourself a Paul or Paulette. Second, get a Barnabas. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He was Paul's right-hand man. They were best buddies. When Paul was getting kind of, uh, the church kind of stayed away from Paul because they were like, oh, you used to kill us. We're kind of, you know, wary of you. Barnabas steps in. He's like, I'll be your huckleberry, right? I'll, I'll, I'll be your best friend. I'll be, and they were missionary companions and they were peers and they encouraged each other. They sharpened each other. They didn't pull each other away from Christ. They fired each other up toward Christ. Do you have a Barnabas? A close friend, a best friend, a bestie, a heart friend. Someone that you can be with without having to feel like you need to fill the, you know, the, you can be silent with. They know you, you know them, but someone who will sharpen you. Someone who will help you follow Christ. Someone who will hold you accountable. Someone you can just laugh with and hang with. Proverbs 13, 20 says this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But a friend of fools suffers harm. Let me give you a paraphrase of that. You will become who your closest friends are. If you have close friends who are on fire for the Lord, they're going to help inflame your passion for the Lord. I see some nods. Some of you guys probably know that from experience. But if, you, if your closest friends are apathetic or cold about Jesus, you too will become apathetic or cold about Jesus. Your closest friends are in a fallible prophecy of where you will be in the future. And so like Thomas Brooks says, let your best friend be those who have made Christ their best friend. Get a Paul, get a Barnabas, and lastly, get a Timothy. Don't just think about what you can get from someone older or what you can get from someone around the same area, but also think what you can give to a younger believer. Some of you guys are like, I've just been following Jesus for like two hours. I don't have anyone. Well, there's someone who's been following Jesus only for one hour, <laughs> right? And you're a little further down the road. Maybe it's a middle schooler. Maybe it's a high schooler. Maybe it's another college student who just became a Christian. But grab someone younger in age and faith and befriend their soul and fight for their joy. Let me tell you, one of the quickest and most powerful ways to grow your faith in Jesus is to labor to grow someone else's. If you are trying to help someone else follow Christ, it is going to grow your own soul exponentially. Get a Paul, get a Barnabas, get a Timothy. Three relationships. Number four is this, and this is the last one. Daily preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to your soul. Daily preach the gospel of Jesus to your soul. Don't wait till Sunday to hear the gospel. Don't wait till camp to hear the gospel. Don't wait until you have a conversation with a Christian friend to hear the gospel. You must preach the gospel to you every single day. Because you and I, we kind of have gospel amnesia, do we not? Have you ever been at church one day and you're just kind of, you're singing, you're praying, and you sing a song like, nothing but the blood of Jesus, and all of a sudden you're like, what could wash away my sins? Blood of Jesus, what can make me whole again? Blood of Jesus. And you just have this moment, you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus has forgiven me and cleansed me. This is, a, it's like you forgot, right? It's like you're like, how did, I, how did I not remember this? How did I not feel this? And you're, because we have gospel amnesia. We have leaky brains. We go to church, get the bucket filled, but there's a hole in the bucket of our mind, and we end up forgetting the gospel. 
And so we need to remind ourselves of it daily. But here's another problem is that we always are preaching to ourselves something. One pastor said it this way, there is no one more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you do. Right? You get up this morning, and I know some people aren't morning people. You get up this morning, right? And you, feel, you say this, oh, this sucks. Oh, I feel terrible. Oh my gosh, I hate, I don't, today is going to suck. Man, I shouldn't have gone to bed. I'm an idiot. You know what you're doing? You're getting on the pulpit of your heart, and you are preaching to yourself all kinds of truths at that moment. And you know what the problem is? You're listening to yourself. You get into problems where it's, I mean, you start to feel depressed, you start to feel cold, or you start to feel, and you just think, man, you're not a good Christian. Man, you're just despicable. Man, you're just, you're getting on the pulpit of your heart. You're looking at you and you're saying, you are terrible. You are horrible. How do you think God could ever love you? How do you think Jesus can smile about you? You know what? You are preaching to yourself falsehoods. What you need to train yourself to do is take the precious truth of God's word, get onto the pulpit of your heart saying, you know what, I do know that you feel like a scumbag right now, but you are the righteousness of Jesus Christ, period. You know what, I know that you feel like you're drowning in your sin right now and you are covered in its muck, but in God's sight, you are clothed in linen that is whiter than snow, You know what? I know you feel right now that God is just disgusted with you and he wants nothing to do with you, but you need to know that through the precious work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, when God looks at you, he says what he said of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Don't wait till you get to church to have someone preach the gospel to you. You need to learn to preach the gospel to you. How do I do that? Learn some gospel, memorize some gospel-rich scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10 has saved my life time and time again. I feel like dirt and scum, and then I remember by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who are being made holy. Or I remember, by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, he has made me holy once for all. And so I would tell myself, Dana, I know you feel very unholy right now, but that's a false gospel. Because through Christ's work, you are holy. Find gospel-rich passages, memorize them, and then take them up to the pulpit of your heart and slam them into your soul. Or memorize gospel-rich songs with a guy like Christian leading you with these kinds of songs, right? Not these Jesus is my boyfriend kinds of songs, these happy, you know, uh, feely, you know, kind of gushy-gushy songs that don't really say much of any particular importance. He is preaching truth to you through his mouth and guitar. And if you were to take some of these songs and memorize them, and then when you are in times needing the gospel preached to you, don't just preach to yourself, sing to yourself. I don't know how many times... And this happens in the shower for me, (laughs) where I'm in the shower, I'm feeling disgusted, I'm feeling guilty for something that I've done, I'm just feeling depressed, and I sing to myself this line. When Satan tempts me to despair, to lose hope, and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and forgive me. Another way to preach the gospel to yourself is this. Meditate on preaching and make sure when someone's preaching to you the word of God, you receive it as the gift that it is. 
Don't sit back passively and let the truth kind of wash over you. Lean into the sermons at, at Kairos. Lean into the sermons on Sunday morning and, and know that God is, is preaching through that person to your soul. Receive it. Take it. Chew it. Taste it. And let it affect you. Here's the last story or just illustration I want to end on. This sums up our whole camp. So those are ways, friends, to paddle back to shore. Don't wait for some extraordinary experience that'll you know, change everything and then it will turn to the happy montage where your life has changed and then, and no, this is how you paddle. This is how, how you live the life that savors Christ. It's a plodding journey. But let me just again tell you that all of it comes down to having your eyes on Jesus, on his promises, on his commands for your life to live for instruction. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans? Here's the thought I think sums up our weekend well together. It's from a scene of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's when Lucy is reacquainted, reunited with Aslan. And then, oh joy, for Aslan was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But never, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was fr- a friendly lion or not. She rushed to Aslan. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could, burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one answered Aslan. It's not because you're actually bigger? No, I am not bigger. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger and bigger and bigger. God is the gospel, amen? If you look into the face of Christ, the King of Judah, the Lion of Judah, you will find him each and every day, not smaller, Father, thank you so much for our time together. And thank you that you have given us...